Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on our website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. If the platform that you use allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the info out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we're joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. Athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. We are also very happy to welcome onto the show Jackson Taylor, who is a physical therapist in Connecticut. This is part two of our two-part series in which we discuss some existential questions that we've all probably had. Why did we choose our profession? How does our character impact our ability to succeed professionally? What are the actionable steps we can take to better reflect on our character and what our given purpose is in life? It's a great conversation with Jackson, and we hope you enjoy it. I'm looking at a research article that I had saved that the title is Seeing Everyone Else's Highlight Reels, How Facebook Usage is Linked to Depressive, depressive Symptoms. Uh, read that. It's actually an interesting read. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned, sorry, uh, real quick, just about that that happiness thing. And you had mentioned earlier, what is enough? And I think a lot of people use like how much you earn as enough. Like once I make this much money or once I make that much money and, and I can say this just from recent personal experience that it, I feel so much better with my life choices over the last year because I know you talked about your little sister. I know my little girls are going to be able to tell their kids stories about me because I'm around. Yeah. And that's been a big shift, not just for me, but for my family. And that's, you know, when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, those are the decisions you have to make. Like, who are you trying to please and what is really enough? Yeah. When you sit down and really think about it, and this is where it came for me, I don't give a crap about myself that much. I worry about my little girl's what they're going to tell their kids and how like my grandfather had a huge impact on my life. And it, he, I still tell people stories about what he meant to me. I want my grandkids and their kids to be impacted by that. And if you can boil it all the way down to that, which is hard because you do have to go through like all the, ego stuff, which we'll talk about, like, well, I want to be this, or I want to be that, or I want to mean this to people. Um, and, 
and really, especially with Instagram and all the other stuff that's out there, is that even, is that even worth your time? Like, is it a, what, what is that meaning? Is that a shallow meaning? No, like when I'm done and we're on some other form of social media 50 years from now, where they're just probably blasting pictures into your brain, you don't even need a screen in front of you. Like I'm not, nobody's going to, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to care. So, but the people that do care are your girls. Yeah. I think that that's something. And the biggest part about that is that that has nothing to do with what other people see. And I think that that's where the ego thing comes in is where, and that's something that I am so guilty of on so many levels is doing things because I want other people to validate me. And that's just not, it's just not what it's about. Like you miss, like I've loved, like I said, given up like the social media stuff. It's amazing how much more time I spend like calling my family or reading about things that I think are going to benefit me or spending more time with a patient when instead I could have been like setting up a video to show some whatever, you know, like it's amazing how when you start prioritizing, like what's important, like is, is your social media and your image so important that you're willing to sacrifice something else? You know, and I, I always, um, I've come to kind of this conclusion in my own mind is that our, our life is a big budget, right? Just like we budget money. So yes, there is some truth to say, like, if I'm posting images of whatever, it's going to help people, you know, like, you know, I'm Jared Hall and I'm getting all this great info out. That is fantastic. And it's wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that he's this way. I'm just giving an example. But what does that detract from somewhere else? Because you can't just give something, but you have to take a deposit somewhere else. I gave the same example when we talked about we did this the other day talking about um, I don't know if it was dry needling or whatever it was, you know, if, if it helps somebody, you know, well, you know, even if I told them maybe a fib or whatever about whatever this was going to do, but they got better. Yes, you're right. You did help them. But did you have to withdraw from your character to put that there? You know, did you have to become fraudulent to do something somewhere else? Again, did you help somebody? Sure. And that's a good thing. We would, we would never argue that, but does it take away from who you are as a person? You know, did you lose some trust from people because you decided to make a decision over here? Uh, even on Level Up the other night, I was talking to, uh, uh, his name's Cash, about that topic. We were like, well, would I tell somebody a narrative that was, you know, a, a little bit of a white lie just to make them feel better or to get better? And my, my conversation back to him was, does that make it easier to do it again in the future? You know, like the first lie always leads to making it easier to tell a second lie. And I think as, as humans, when we're doing all of these things, it's important to remember, am I helping here, but what am I losing because of it? Or, or what, what sacrifices am I making? So when, if it's our family, you know, I'd rather make less money and spend more time with the people that love me. You know, and one of the things that I, we've talked about, and this is something that's an actionable step, but I think it's important. I think it's good for us to jump to it now. So Stephen Covey wrote um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And his big visualization or the little mental experiment he does in there is imagine yourself at your funeral, you know, and you've got someone there who's, you know, you've got your mom, your dad, a coworker, your kids, um, someone that you, you know, played rec pickup basketball with, whatever and all of them goes up to the podium, what do they say about you? You know, and that is like, when you start thinking about that and you're like, you know what, my kids would say that I'm never around or my, my brother would say that I was never kind. And I think that we can transition that into clinical care. What would my patients say about me? 
would they say, oh, you know what, they threw a hot pack on me and they had somebody else do exercises with me? Or do they say, you know what, he was kind, he was empathetic, you know, he listened to me when nobody else wanted to, he tried to answer my questions, he did his best to try and make me feel better, you know, even when I was probably a complete jerk, you know, or I made it difficult, you know, that person was there for me for something more. And that's not easy. That is wicked hard. But I want people to say that about me. You know, would some people say that now? Probably not. I'm sure I've had some patients that probably hate me. But when you start reflecting on that, it changes things. Because when we're all on the ground, we're all on the ground. What do we leave behind is, well, he was a jerk and never spent time with me. Or he cared about me more than just a number. And that's something that bothers me in healthcare is we're so numbers driven, numbers driven. And I get the business side of it. Um, this conversation really isn't going that direction. But like even now, I treat patients every 20 minutes. That doesn't mean I can't be kind to them or have humility towards them or try to level with them a little bit, right? So, you know, just to go off what John said, that's really what we got to kind of figure out is, you know, is it worth it to go this direction? Because what gets, what gets taken away because of that? So how do you define ego? We've, we've, ta- we've said the term a number of times now. So uh, I'm going to pull it from Ego is the Enemy, which is another great Brian Holiday book. So he talks about it as an unhealthy belief in our own importance, arrogance, self-centered ambition. Um, and I'll preface this by saying that ego, I would also put it on a spectrum. You have to have a little bit of it. But is it pushing you to the point like having ego versus being completely just throw to the wind, whatever happens, happens, like just always stand offish. Like there has to be a little bit of ambition there. You can't just lack ambition. But I think in the way that we're talking about it right now, again, it's an unhealthy belief in who we are. Could it also be considered, and maybe this is in the same vein, as ego is kind of the sense of self, but you can, you can inflate your sense of self by kind of, by creating your narratives to be about you. So we, clinically we talk about, are we doing this because it's what we think is best for the patient or are we doing it for ourselves ultimately or to get that little dopamine boost? Am I doing this fancy therapy because I like when they say, oh, that feels nice. Or am I doing it because I actually think it's going to drive some type of, of long-term thing to, to help them? Um, so the, that's kind of how I conceptualize it. What are your guys' thoughts on on that? Because I liked your piece, Jackson, where you said the ego itself is not, it's a spectrum. So the ego is just the thing. It's the inflation of such that get, can maybe get us in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the way that we're going to talk about ego is in a is in a negative way because I think the other word that we'd I'd almost replace that with confidence. You know, I would almost say that ego is bad, confidence is good. You know, but inflating our the confidence in ourself is good. The self validation of ourself is is not so good. Um, you know, and I'm, I'll pull a, I'll give you an example. So in that book, Ego is Enemy by Ryan Holiday, he talks about General, um, I think it's George Marshall from World War II. And he goes in to get his painting done. 
you know, and he considers, like he talks about him in the book, just being a very magnanimous character. Like he doesn't take any credit for anything. And then Eisenhower gets all the credit and this guy's just sitting in the background like, hey, it's okay. Well, they do this painting of him and he sits there and does it. And then he gets up and walks away. And the painter goes, don't you want to see it? He's like, no, why would I want to see it? And the purpose there is, or the point that they make is it has nothing to do with, you know, he's got better things to do than to look at himself. You know, he's, it's just a part of what they're doing. You know, we have better, and we'll talk about the social media thing again. We have better things to do than validate ourselves and take a picture and do this and do that. Like where else can my time be spent? And that's where ego gets in the way is it, it basically tells us that we're, you know, that we can't be broken, that we can't be brought down. You know, I've made this money because I'm inherently great. Or, you know, I've helped these patients because I am so awesome. And I've done all of these great things. I have all these letters after my name because I'm so intelligent. That's what ego tells us. Ego wants to convince us that we are something that we are not. When in fact, all that stuff can crumble down overnight. And it's amazing the humbling process that that takes as opposed to, oh, I'm so great because my patient is better. Well, maybe it just happened to be that two months passed and the regression to the mean occurred. Maybe your patient was going to get better no matter if you were there or not. Mm. That's where we have to check ego. And, I, and I'll say all this to say this too. It is not that we don't have ego. All of us have egos. We will all have egos. We all have biases. It's the appreciation that we have them and our ability to cope with them. It, it's, not, it's not like we're trying to ab or just get rid of ego. Like you can't just delete it, but you can appreciate it for what it is and tame it. You know, that is, that's what Stoic philosophy is basically all about, is kind of taming your, your passions, so to speak. Like, we all have these things that we get fired up about, but it's the ability to see past that. And that's really where ego comes in, is, is understanding that, you know, we have this belief in ourselves that we're awesome. And sometimes that can be super beneficial. You know, like picturing yourself, you know, in two weeks, I've got this sprint track. Athlon. Like there's plenty of times where I visualize like doing really well in my swim and doing well on the bike and getting on the run and my legs are tired, but I go through it and I do it. You know, there is a little bit of like, okay, my ego is telling me that I'm going to, you know, go accomplish this. What I'm not saying is I'm the best. If I finish this, I'm somehow inherently great. No, that lacks the humility that you need. One book that I've read recently or actually listened to it doesn't actually maybe that doesn't count as reading in some people's minds but <laughs> it was called how to change your mind by michael paul and it was actually about psychedelics and how they affect the brain but just like a californian it's uh i've never taken part but it was Joe interesting Rose about to walk in the door yeah i know <laughs> but they're you know we talk think about the word ego and i don't necessarily think that freud meant it in a negative fashion. It was just the I part of his tripartite model of the mind, the id, the ego, the superego, the, the ego was the I. And so and what they've tried to define or, or see in, in regards to psychedelics and how it affects the brain is that the sense of I dissipates or you have anxiety or you have disorders like anxiety and depression where the sense of I is heightened and there's a spectrum there. And I, I can see, I'm seeing connections with what we're talking about just for myself is the more I think about me, 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 the more my, my, my sense of self, AKA ego is inflated, the more I, I start to get wrapped up in some negative thought processes too. And it kind of feeds into itself. 
the more anxious I feel, the more I think about myself and the, the more selfish I get and then the less I have to give. So it is, I even think it's healthy to think of it as a, on a spectrum, you know, we're healthcare providers. We're in a position of quote unquote authority. So there is some, some sense of, of power there in a sense that we are the experts and we can, we can veto if we feel we have recommendations. And if our recommendations go against that of the patient, it's our responsibility if we feel that those recommendations are important. And I, so I think that ego is kind of a, a part of what we do on a daily basis to some extent, but it's at what end and what is the motive behind it, behind what you're saying in regards to the, the sense of self or the ego, kind of utilizing that for the good of the person in front of you or utilizing it for your own personal gain. Um, but probably not questions that, that can necessarily be answered, but just things to kind of think about internally. Well, I can give you an example that I talked to John about uh, last week because I know a big part of this is being able to, how do you apply this crap? Like, oh, ego, that's all good and well and character and integrity, but like it, it's all kind of just words until you find ways to apply it. So, you know, case study from, you know, right now I'm treating a kid who's in, uh, he had an anterior bank art. Um, he had a surgery before that that was botched and then had some bad PT and so his shoulders jacked up. So he came in day one, mom comes with him and immediately the minute mom walks in, you know, the word helicopter is just like spinning over her head. Like this, this, it's one of those situations where she speaks for him. He's got no voice. You know, he's like 14 years old. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, Oh, great. You know, just like all of us do. We're like, all right, whatever. So we come in, we start talking, you know, this kid is like, wouldn't move his shoulder. He's like three weeks post-op and I could like touch the side of his arm and it was like the worst thing ever. Like guarded, he just held his arm stiff. Like couldn't do anything, couldn't move it. He was terrified. He wouldn't, just wouldn't do anything. And so the whole time I was telling mom, I was like, hey, you know, we're going to try and move this thing. You know, we've got, we have a protocol. I've spoken to the surgeon, like this is what we're going to do. And so like a month, I think a month went by. I think right now he's at like two months, whatever it is. And I'm looking through my notes before I see this kid that day. I just saw him on Thursday and this is the following Tuesday and I see a note from a PA. So after his Thursday appointment, they went and saw, they went to the urgent care because he was in excruciating pain in his shoulder, you know, and his mom was like terrified immediately brought him to the urgent care, like huge deal, huge ordeal. I had this huge long note about how the therapist is pushing him too hard and they're working all this stuff. And so I'm reading this note and in my own mind, all I want to do is just like, I'm MFing this kid and his mom. I'm like, this kid is acting like a little biatch. Like he doesn't want to move his shoulder. Mom is sitting there just holding him down. Like she's in control of all this. Every time she says something, he does it. Like all these things are spinning in my head. And I found myself getting like worked up because we've all done that. We've had patients say stuff about us or that we're doing something wrong. And meanwhile, this kid's like three weeks behind his protocol. Like we're at like 30 degrees of flexion and he's supposed to be at like 160 or something. And so like all we're doing is nothing during treatment. And I'm thinking of all this stuff, but I realized in that moment, my ego was through the roof because I was blaming them entirely. I was like, this, it's this kid's fault. It's this mom's fault. It's, it's all about them. And then, uh, and the problem with that is, is that solves nothing. And I kind of sat there and was like, you know what, this is, 
this is a great moment. I think I told you guys this last, you ever see the movie, um, um, oh, I'm a blanket. Oh, Bruce Almighty. You ever seen mm-hmm. that Quinn? So mm-hmm. we talked about this last time. So there's a moment in that where, you know, Morgan Freeman as God says, you know, when we pray for, you know, courage, do we just get given courage or do we get opportunities to be courageous? You know, and I, and I felt that in that moment, I was kind of like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to put my ego aside. What can I do in this situation to make it better? You know, do I need to apologize? Do I need to assess things? What can I do for this kid? Because he's still coming in to see me. You know, it's my job as a clinician to put my crap to the side and what can I do to help him? And how can I handle mom? How can I, maybe I need to have her sit outside during treatments. Maybe I need to have dad. I don't know what it is. But I had to put aside my problems. I know because I was I was too good. You know, there, there's no way that I did anything wrong. You know, well, you know, maybe I did bother his shoulder. Maybe I need to come at it from a different angle. You know, but I was pushing it on them immediately. And I think that as clinicians is where we need to check our egos. Is you know, sometimes it may not be our fault, but we can always change something about what we're doing to help somebody else. You know, if they chose to go somewhere else, that's totally fine. But what can I do to make myself better from it? You know, we choose that. It's my, you know, Viktor Frankl talks about between the stimulus and the response, we have the freedom to choose. The stimulus was this kid was pissed and mom was pissed or his shoulder was whatever. And between the response of what happens is what I do. You know, I'm going to have them come in and just not care about this kid. Am I going to be like, ah, well, you know what? You're way behind. So sucks to suck. We're going to have to move this thing really hard. And, you know, this just, you know, whatever. Suck it up. And then watch mom freak out or do I need to look at her and be like, hey, you're being a helicopter mom. Why don't you get the hell out of my clinic? And because that's what I really wanted to do at first, you know, because I felt attacked. But that's the total opposite of what we're supposed to do. Uh, That won't benefit them at all. So as a clinical example, which maybe you guys have others like that, that hit me hard because it wasn't that in that moment I was like very stoic and calm and like, oh, I'm going to handle this well. I was friggin pissed. But I had to check myself. You know, again, it's my ego existed, but did I try to tame it? You know, that, but as that happens more, I, I feel like we get better at it. You know, I still suck at it, but that's one more example I can use. And one more time that my brain gets used to, this is a better way to handle it. Now, two weeks later from that, the kid's doing fantastic. You know, he's got back to full range of motion. The strength looks better. And I don't want to say it's because I did it, but I think if I'd gone the other route, he'd be going somewhere else. And that doesn't benefit him or me. So that's one of those big like ego checks to just keep in mind as clinicians. Yeah, I'll I'll chime in too. Um, That definitely happens to me, Uh, whether it's uh, a situation in the clinic or whether someone online says something either about me directly or about an idea or something with which I identify and I take that or, or the visceral reaction is taking that as a personal attack. Um, another book that you've got in your list is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And that's been, uh, without any exaggeration, pretty life-changing, a life-changing read or listen, Quint, uh, for me too, because I, I got that in audiobook format. Um, but the idea, there's a lot of nuance that goes into it, but the idea of, of extreme ownership, as Jocko and Leif put it out there, is that um, leaders will, will take ownership for everything in their world. And... Again, I wanted to preface it by saying there's nuance because there are some things that we have no control over. You know, you get sick. You, you didn't necessarily get yourself sick, but you you do have the responsibility as far as how you're going to respond to that sickness or what you're going to be doing in that situation. And so it's been a 
it'll continue to be a process for me. Um, but probably one of the most telling things has been my wife telling me on a couple of occasions, maybe more than a couple, um, that she's noticed a drastic change in how I approach situations, even if we're arguing about something or um, discussing something that's a little contentious or in the past would have resulted in a big blow up or something. Um, she's, she's noticed that I'll step back and detach a little bit better and be able to recognize that. Um, even if there are things going on that I don't necessarily like, it's still my responsibility to make sure that um, I communicate well and that we we take actions that ultimately results in the things that we want to have happen. Um, and it's not it's not easy. Um, but that again, I talked about a paradigm shift earlier. This this has been another one, or maybe part of the same paradigm shift for me, is just viewing everything as if it's anybody's fault, it's mine. So how how then can I change? How can I be better to try to serve this person or these people better? And I'm not great at it. It's a, and it's a hard thing. Um, it, it requires a lot of time and conscious effort, but then, you know, doing things or taking actions like maybe pulling back a little bit from how, um, involved with social media or other, other draining activities, um, that I've previously engaged in, maybe that gives me a little bit more gas in the tank to, to direct towards these, these other things, which to me are, are more meaningful. I agree with that. And I think one of the things that clinically I've used for a while in a similar situation, I think all of us have been in that situation that Jackson has is to ask myself upfront, how did we get here? And, and, not just to evaluate like, okay, well, you know, the mom's a helicopter mom and the, the kid doesn't speak for himself, but, but also, okay, so what did I do to foster that behavior or allow that to continue? Or what are things that I didn't say? Or did I say things that weren't clear enough? Like that's one thing that I know is a huge fault of mine is I'll say something and it's, it's a known to me, but it's an unknown to them. So you have to say it multiple times in different types of formats and and I'll just assume that I got my point across and then I'll go back and I'll be like, well, obviously, because of the result of where we are now, I didn't communicate effectively or I didn't fully flesh out that conversation or have the difficult conversation that I needed to have. And by starting off with that question it's helped me evaluate that stuff. And it's made, it's made my relationship with my wife better. You know, she'll get angry or upset about something. I'll be like, okay, hold on. Where did I, how did we get here? Oh, it's because I didn't tell her that I wasn't able to pick up the kids today. <laughs> like little, little stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it allows you to step back for a second and shelve that ego to the side a little bit and say, okay, wait a second. What, what personal stake did I have in this result? How could I have done differently? And what can I do now to rectify that problem? Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from the existential crisis that you're probably in from our conversation with Jackson Taylor. 
We'll get back to that in just a second. We wanted to let you know that we will be looking to begin scheduling our 2020 weightlifting and powerlifting certifications. So if you know of a willing facility who would like to host a clinical athlete barbell certification, have them email events at clinicalathlete.com with a subject line of seminar host, and we will send all details. And one more quick announcement. We have recently launched the Clinical Athlete Coaching Program in which myself, John Flagg, and Jared Maynard are head coaches. So if you're an athlete or know of any athletes in need of coaching to be able to get back to or surpass their previous performance goals, head over to clinicalathlete.com for details. And now back to the show. Jackson, how do you define empathy? Because it's really what we're talking about here as regards to a quality that a clinician should exude as they're interacting with, with the person in front of them. What, how do you define that? And what do you think empathy's role is for the clinician? So empathy is kind of a, there's a lot of ways to define it. Between empathy and sympathy, I think, is the big difference that we always get. Like, oh, I'm sympathetic towards them. Are you empathetic towards them? You know, so when I define empathy, and again, other people may look at this different, I'm really looking at, am I able to objectively which is impossible, put myself in somebody else's shoes, you know, cause you know, if, if you or John or Jared are going through something, you know, like I'm not married, I'll give that example. So Jared's going through something with his wife. I may not know what that's like from a, from like an actual, I've been there, done that. Like I haven't practiced those things, but I can empathize with him going, what would he, if I was him, what would I feel? Or what do I think I would feel? You know, how would I do that? And it's really putting yourself in someone else's shoes, but in a way that is objective as possible. So I'll give the example of like a patient comes in. Uh, I had a patient the other day. They were they came in because their back hurt and they've seen a bunch of people. They've had a bunch of injections. They had someone tell them that their spine was malaligned and all these things. And as a clinician, I get super tired of hearing that. And I'm like, oh, like why are we screwing people over so bad and how we're speaking to them about these things? Like... But that's not my patient's fault. So if I was that patient and someone had told me, hey, if we put this injection in your back, you're going to feel better. Or, hey, your spine's out of a line. If we put it back in place, you're going to feel better. You know, if you've been told that narrative a hundred times and I just go, eh, you know, what? that's a bunch of crap. You know, it's, you know, your, your back's fine. Like, let's, you know, let's go do some exercises or, you know, let's get you working out. I have totally missed the fact that I am not empathizing with them. I can sympathize and be like, oh, well, that super sucks. But I'm not thinking to myself, if I was that person looking at me right now and I told them that they were just full of crap and that all the stuff they just told me has nothing to do with anything, you know, it's it's really that me just attacking them for no reason. It doesn't do me any good. It doesn't do them any good. So when we empathize with people, it, you know, it's it's kind of putting on like the emotions they may be experiencing, but from 10,000 feet. It's, you know, if... If I was them, what what do I need right now? You know, and I can give that same example about the kid with the bank heart repair. You know, if I was that kid and mom was treating me this way and I was coming here and I, I'm being rushed here and there, what am I thinking? And am I going to be accurate in that? Hell no, because I'm not that kid and I'm not anybody else. But the attempt to try and do that at some cost to myself is true empathy. You know, like, is it going to cost me some time and effort and putting my ego aside to really benefit somebody else regardless? And I know, I think I put in there a quote. So Jamil Zaki wrote a book called The War on Kindness, um, which I finished up recently. Super good book, but the whole book's about empathy. 
And um, I think he puts empathy's most important role, though, is to inspire kindness, our tendency to help each other, even at a cost to ourselves. Uh, that really puts empathy in its best light. And I know all of us have experienced that. And I have sucked at empathizing. Because um, sometimes you're just like, dude, what? come on. Like, I've had chronic back pain for 30 years. Like, whoop-de-doo. You know, and is there something to say that we need to be able to kind of gauge that? Like, how far can I push this person? How far can I not? Sure. But I still got to be able to try to see things from where they are. Otherwise, I can't help them. A couple of things you said there, empathy being as, uh, as best we can an objective thing, but stepping into somebody's shoes, but from a, a 10,000 foot view, which is kind of a paradox, but I, I think people get mixed up into a, a dichotomy of, I either have to be stone cold and cold hearted or I have, or I can be empathetic. But if I'm empathetic, I can only take on somebody's emotions for so long before I get drained. But that's not necessarily what empathy is. You're not necessarily taking somebody else's emotions on. You're trying to look at the situation from their worldview. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take it all take it on yourself because that is what I think maybe runs people's down. Am I, am I understanding that concept? Thousand percent. That is the, because one of there's actually a, a book that talks about the downsides of empathy. And that's one of the downsides is that we get so involved and we all, you know, I've had people in my own life who, you know, some family in, you know, Europe loses their son and they're distraught, you know, and it's not to say that that's not a tragedy, but they, they become so heavily involved in what's happening outside of themselves that they can't control it. They, they lose control of like who they are, you know? So you're exactly right in saying that it's, it's got nothing to do with the fact that you're, you want to take on their emotions. But again, it's, it's almost in an objective manner. Like if I was them, what would I feel? And what would I, cause again, we're also not experiencing what they are. So that gives us an, a little bit more of an objective piece because you know, they may be feeling sad. And how do I equate to that? You know, have I had situations in my own life where I've felt these things and what did I look for? What did I want? What helped me? You know, those are questions that are hard to ask. And especially in a, you know, 30 minute treatment, you know, how do you put all that in your brain and then spit something out to them that's actually effective? Um, I, I practice plays a big role in that, but you're very right. It's, it's not about just getting so involved in them that you're like, Oh my gosh, they, they're going downhill. You know, as practitioners, we do have to have a sense of, you know, kind of objective realism to the fact that, you know, I'm going to help them as best I can, but if I can't see what they're seeing, try to, I, I really can't help them. And again, you're just going to see the whole process of, well, let's go put them on a hot pack and, you know, maybe we'll, keep the ultrasound machine off and, you know, put that on them and you know, they might get better, you know, but then they're going to be back in four months because all you did was screw them over more. Well, at least you saved electricity by giving them ultrasound <laughs> without it turned on. It's definitely <laughs> save, the, save the clinic some money. Yeah. Are, are you seeing trends? Cause we've actually, we got some notes here. We always, you know, have some, some talking points before the show and there's actually a little bit of, of evidence showing empathy is decreasing in in the field and i've we cited a, a a study looking at med students and i've actually heard this study cited in a number of books in that over the course of med school 
students rate themselves as less empathetic kind of as the process goes on. It's almost like they've just kind of been beaten down into submission. Can you talk a little bit about the trends that we're seeing in that regard? Yeah, I, I know the, so the one paper that I cited actually came from that book, but it was basically saying that people in 2009, you know, again, this is all based on, you know, research done with kids filling out surveys. So, you know, how accurate all of it is, you know, but I think we can all agree on a lot of the stuff. People in 09 were 75% less empathetic than in 1979, looking at college students, you know? So, and again, maybe that's a sliding scale. Maybe it's, it could be as high as 90, maybe it could be as low as 50, but 50% is a lot when you consider that long-term. And I'll even look at it for myself when I was in grad school. We're taught this very, you know, uh, I guess I'll say biomedical approach to patients. Oh, well, you have a tendinopathy. We're gonna do this, 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 and this. And I think what empathy does is it adds the human. You know, some, we so often forget that what we're treating is a human. And we talk about this all the time. That's why the biopsychosocial models become such a big thing is, you know, it's, it's not a machine. But even, even with people saying that all these days, I think we're still missing the fact that you're right, their brains are involved. But we've still made it biomedical by saying, well, you know what, pain comes from here. And, you know, nociception isn't really pain reception. But it's this, this, you know, we're still pointing at, you know, mechanical things and forgetting it's a human. You know, that's what empathy does, is it reminds you that this is a person. So, you know, from way back then, to, even through grad school for me, I noticed myself becoming less empathetic in some ways because I was treating everybody as a disorder or as a disease or as a knee replacement or as opposed to, no, I'm treating, you know, John, you know, it's a, it's a person. Yes, there's got some stuff going on, but that's what empathy does. I think it bridges that gap between, you know, that biomedical and that biopsychosocial model is the ability to see that it's a human. And over time, myself, and maybe you guys can attest to that, or at least that's what we're taught. You know, like I didn't take a class in grad school about, you know, being a good person as a clinician. Took a lot of classes about biomedical stuff and how to use my hands. And, the you know, we had like 18 steps at my school of how to, you know, treat a patient. But there wasn't any of those steps that said empathize. That wasn't on, that didn't make the list. You know, so we're not taught those things. So you can imagine, especially as you go through medical school or PT school, some of those things just you're not going to get good at because you don't practice. That's not a part of it. I mean, I can tell you that a lot of the kids in my class, um, you know, they were real smart. You know, they could, they could ace every test. But when they had to get in front of a person who was distraught or crying or whatever, you're like, uh, 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 what do I do? You know, and we've all been there before in some way, right? So, but that's not something that's taught. So I think if we're talking about school specifically, that is a huge lacking component. You know, I think Level Up's doing a good job right now of talking about a lot of the research stuff and clinical athlete and, you know, even barbell medicine, places like that, where it's like, we got to talk about all the stuff, but we're still forgetting that you're treating humans and we have to learn how to handle that. You know, there, it's almost like we need psychology for healthcare professionals. Like that needs to be a class that's taught, you know, outside of, you know, instead of us teaching classes on like, I had a critical thinking class that literally uh, the only critical thinking I had to do was like open Blackboard and click yes to a couple questions and close it. You know, like there's so much things that we waste time on where we could be spending time learning how to treat people better, you know. And I think that some of that does come down to ourselves learning how to, you know, 
helping ourselves or self-managing how we can be better as clinicians, you know, but sometimes, you know, you need to learn those things, you know, like it, I can, I would love to see universities that taught a class and see how that changes, like how the Naval College teaches a philosophy class on, it's like this huge class that people love and it totally changes people's perspective on how they handle the world and war and, you know, that stuff. Like what if PT schools taught that? I would sign up for that class immediately, you know? You mentioned earlier in the conversation the funeral visualization by Stephen Covey, kind of the idea of what would people say about me in my funeral. What Do you have any other actionable steps that people can take, new grads or young young students looking to, to find their way in order to better reflect on their character and, and kind of their path? Sure. I, I, you know, for me... I used to always be like, I had to have like things, like I had to have like something I was striving for, or, you know, these are the things that define me and and yada, yada. But one of the things I started learning is that one of the best, one of the best things I ever did for myself, which was also told to me from when I was a kid and I just never did it. Cause I was like, eh, that's whatever is, is writing it down. So like every day I journal about the day, either that night or the next morning, I write about that day and it might not have anything to do with, PT, it might, like I wrote about that kid in my journal a couple weeks ago and like trying in my own mind to put that down. But that's one of those things that it forces you to reflect on what you did. And I will honestly say that I put that off for years because I was so scared of writing it down because it made me, it challenged my ego. It made me feel as if, you know what, if I write this down, does it make it more real? You know, do I really, because you have to sit there and look at yourself like, you know, today I did this you know, was that right? Is that something that I need to work on? You know, and you've got all these people across, you know, so I'll I'll give you the example of Marcus Aurelius, you know, greatest Roman emperor ever, and probably one of the greatest leaders ever. His book Meditations is him like quarreling with himself about how to be a better man. It was just his journal, you know, but they published it as a book. But in doing so, it makes you better at whatever you do. So, uh, you know, I would say that journaling is one of the greatest things people can do. And journaling or even saying it into a microphone, I don't know, if you don't like writing, type it, uh, whatever it does. If you never reflect on what you're doing, how can you ever move forward? Because you're not making any decisions on what you did in the past. So that's one of my big things is the funeral visualization is awesome. And then write down what those people would say. I would say journaling every day and do that for like a month. Like journal every day or try to, and then go back and read it. What did you learn about yourself? You know, are you more shallow than you thought? And be honest, no one's going to read your journal. That's one of the other things I always find myself doing is like, I'm writing something down and being like, ooh, I hope nobody reads this. But you know, no one cares about stealing Jackson Taylor's journal. Like, it's not like it's going to be headline news anytime soon. But again, my ego might tell me it is like, oh my God, they, they might know that I cried last night. You know, like it, it's just one of those things that we get through. But be honest with yourself. Like, you know what? I was an asshole today at work. And this is how I feel about it right now. You know, or, you know, even if you're taking the concept of like you with a spouse, you know, like my wife and I had a blowout fight last night. And now that I've had time to reflect on it, this is the things that I did wrong. What can I do better? How can I handle the situation? Because if you just do it in your mind, it's going to go away because our memory is based on how we feel right now, not on how we felt then. So it's important to get those things down, I think, quickly because it allows us to be more objective in what we're saying. Um, After doing that for a month, I think then it's the time to see what areas in my life 
do I really care about and what things like having your core values. So like my core values, you know, one of which is my family. Cause when I start writing, I write a lot about my family, like missing them, being a part of them. You know, what kind of legacy do I want to leave my little sister? Um, what have I learned the other night I wrote about, you know, what I learned from my godfather and how important he is to me. And, you know, things like that, you start seeing patterns, you know, like at work, if you're being a jerk, you know, obviously work's important. Healthcare is important. Do you talk about the gym when you journal? Do you talk about your kids? Do you, you know, what is in there and establish it? So, you know, my character is important to me. My integrity is important to me. My humility is important to me. You know, how often am I being something I'm not? And I think once you start seeing kind of what you write down and you develop this list of kind of core values or virtues, if you want to call it such, you then reflect your life on those things. So like, for instance, my family is one of mine. When I make a decision, it's important to me that I think to myself, when I make this decision, what would my little sister think of me? Would it positively affect her? Would my, would my godparents be proud of me if I made this decision? And again, you're not going to bat 100% here. In fact, you're going to bat like 200% if you're lucky or you know, 20% if you're lucky. You know, we're not going to be good at it. But if you're not reflecting on it, that makes a big difference. You know, it, you know, if if I'm treating a patient, you know, in, in humility and you know, putting my ego to the side, my character is important to me. Am I going to lie to them about what this treatment does? If I think about it, that affects my character, that that lessens me as a person. I don't want to do that. You know, I'd rather take the harder road than take the easy road, but detract from my character any day of the week, because at least I can look at myself at night and know that I'm. I was bigger than my ego. So if you want to take actionable steps, I think that, that those are, and I'm going to, they are super hard because you have to look at yourself in a way that's, you know, you're, you're kind of a piece of crap. And, but how can your piece of crap become better? You know, and that's a hard thing to do. And I, every day I think of myself like, like, you know what, you know, I, maybe I'm great or maybe I'm good at this or I'm this, this and that. And then I'm like, you know what, I'm not. And that's okay. But am I benefiting? Am I, am I reflecting my values and the things that I do? You know, like even earlier when I was trying to like write something for you guys in a bio, I was like, oh, I could talk about like all this stuff that I've done and all this stuff that I've done and I've done this. And I was like, do I really need to? You know, is that, is that necessary? Or does that detract from who, who I am as a person? You know, and I think that if we can start, those are hard questions. There's no easy way to have them. But again, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So I would start there. And my number one piece of advice is to read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I think everyone should read that book. You know, I know it says Man's Search for Meaning, but it's it's not about men and women. It's just, you know, just read the book and, and take in the fact that those are things. You know, when you start reading about somebody who's having conversations in his mind with his wife, who he doesn't know if he's alive or not, and she's been dead for months, and that's how he gets by. Or you start talking about like him helping people when you know they're walking through these fields at negative two degrees or whatever it is, and they're plugging on because it's important for him to live. You start reevaluating like what's important in life, and so I always recommend that every student athlete I talk to, I'm like, you know, eventually, you know, you're not going to pick it up immediately and read it, and it's hard to read sometimes, but that's as, as clinicians, I think that's a great book, you know, and I think I gave y'all a list of kind of books that I like, and you're welcome to share that out. It's not like it's a secret list, but you know, that's, that's stuff that I think is beneficial that helps people. And yeah, that's that. Well, this has been really awesome, man. 
That's a great, great conversation. I'm going to, yeah, we're going to put that list of books in the show notes. And where can people, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you if they want to talk a little bit about, about this stuff a little bit more? Um, well, that's a good question. So I, I, like I said, I've kind of jumped off of the social media wagon the last couple of months. I still have my social media. It's, um, it's jacksontaylor.dpt. Um, so if you have like questions on there, you know, you're welcome to send me a message or, you know, I, I love emailing people because I think it's just more personal. Like if I, someone has a problem with me, I love it when they email me because it's just me and them. You know, it's just like we can talk it out. So my, my email is jackson at anchorforge.com. Um, so people want to reach out to me there. Go for it. You know, I love like I love these kind of conversations, you know, like even when I've talked to John and Jared before, just like Skyping, just to like you're just talking shop. You know, I think these are the kind of things that people should do more often is find groups of three or four or five people and just kind of hash stuff out. You know, so I'm happy to do that with anybody. You know, I think that's a great way to learn. You know, you learn a lot during podcasts like this. And, you know, I think it's just a good way for us to do it. So if you want to find me, I'll respond eventually. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. This was great. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. I hope so. I hope so. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Quinn, keep doing keep doing the good work, man. It's, it's not easy to keep up with all this stuff and get good information out and do it professionally. And clinical athletes done a, a better job than most people I've ever seen do it. So appreciate it. Well, we appreciate that, man. We'll, we'll keep at it. Thank you. Oh. John and Jared, thanks as always. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Enjoy your 60-degree no. weather, Quinn. I will. <laughs> Thank you to our five listeners. We'd like to thank Jackson Taylor for being on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to Jackson's contact info and for his recommended book list. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering the ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of improved knowledge and practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into this community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions, and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.